Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey listeners, welcome to Making Data Simple, where we talk about data, trending technologies, business innovation, leadership, pretty much anything, but we keep the moniker of Making Data Simple. The topic today is going to be AI, NLP, or Natural Language Processing. My guest today is Eric Olson. Now, Eric, I'm going to turn it over to you in just a minute, but I'll give a quick introduction as a courtesy. Eric is the co-founder and CEO of Consensus. His mission is to combat misinformation and to use AI to make science accessible and consumable for all. I'm told that Eric came up with the idea for Consensus after spending years as a diehard amateur consumer and wanting to access better evidence-based information at the click of a button. I know he holds a master's degree in predictive analytics from Northwestern University and formerly worked at DraftKings, which we may have to talk about. Hmm. Uh, I'm not much of a gambler. I do have FanDuel. Maybe DraftKings is better. You can convince me if you if you like. But welcome to the show. Eric, I appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for the, uh, <laughs> the, the awesome introduction. It's going to be it's going to be a good time. So I gave you a little introduction, but I'd like you to introduce yourself. Talk to your experience, kind of where you've you've come from, and what brings you here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so yeah, my name's Eric Olson. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Consensus. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background. I'll kind of go into Consensus. So um, I, I'm from the Boston area originally. I went to college out in Chicago at Northwestern. My graduate studies, I started to move toward data science. I got my master's in predictive analytics, which is just a fancy word for data science. And then, as you mentioned, <laughs> I, uh, I worked at DraftKings for a number of years in the, in the analytics department, got to do all sorts of cool things there, using player bet data to make predictions on the skill levels of players. So basically like player skill modeling, uh, which is a really, really fun and cool project, taught me about the whole machine learning lifecycle from ideation to actually actioning the data. Uh, and then uh, about the summer of last year, quit my job and came full-time on Consensus. And so what Consensus is, is a search engine that uses artificial intelligence to find answers to people's questions in scientific research. And you kind of alluded to how I came up with the idea. It was, came up with that like six or seven years ago. And it really came down to the, the problem statement of, I loved consuming content that was created by experts. So whether that was a scientist on a podcast or even just something like a TED talk or a nonfiction book. It saw such value in learning what the experts thought about questions. It saw such value in learning, you know, the, the what the experts said about the state of research on a question. And I'd so I felt there was so much value in those types of insights. I used that to shape worldviews. But getting that information on demand as a novice was effectively impossible. Now it was cool when a particular scientist talked about it on a podcast, but being able to, you know, I'm in an argument with a friend, or I want to research something, <laughs> or I hear something on Twitter. I want to learn, is there actually research behind what's being said? There's no easy way to do that. You have one end of the spectrum where you have Google, which is obviously easy to use and we all understand it, but it has all these problems. It is not designed to do this task specifically. They have advertisements. They give you just a list of blue links. They're trying to keep you in the product and click away and capture more data. It's not designed to give you good research-backed answers. Then the other side of the spectrum, you have academic search engines like Google Scholar or PubMed. That has the right content you'd be looking for, but there's been effectively no innovation in that user interface or functionality. 
it's keyword hacking to get this ugly screen with a bunch of links to it and all your work is still ahead of you. So my idea was to marry those two experiences. What if you could take the source material from these awesome academic search engines, marry it with a consumer friendly experience like something like Google. So wanting to be able to, for anybody, regardless of your expertise level, be able to engage with the literature and get evidence-based answers to your questions in a click of a button. Fantastic intro. Backing up for a moment, you're not a Patriots fan, are you? I am a Patriots fan. <laughs> I figured that could be the case. Can you see the helmet in the back of me? I, I can, I can. But all listen, right. I, you know, this is going to be the cockiest thing I'll say. Uh, <laughs> because of all of the winning, I, I, I will earnestly say that my passion has died down a little bit, which is, you know, I, I've seen six championships and I feel like I've, uh, maybe it's age too, but my, my fire for rooting for the Patriots, like I just don't feel that disappointment that they're not that good anymore because I've just seen so much, so much success over the years. I'm, I'm not sure I feel sorry for you. <laughs> so is it, is it Belichick or is it Brady? That's the question. Well, or was it, I should say? It's both. Uh, but I will say that the, the quarterback gives you a much higher floor than a coach does. And that's why, you know, there's a lack of success now. If you have a top five quarterback, your floor of how good your team's going to be is like 10 wins. And you can't say the same about a coach. But a coach is what can get you over the top to being the sixth Super Bowl champion versus maybe only winning one Super Bowl or none, even if you have that top five quarterback. So getting to the six Super Bowls, it's both. But in terms of year-to-year success, a quarterback, your quarterback play is absolutely more correlated with success than who your coach is. That was probably the best answer I've gotten on that question. I'm an nice analytics job. guy. I, uh, I, I, well, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with that, but that's probably the best answer that I've, I've received. I appreciate that. I mean, and, and, he, and he walks right, and then you know, Brady walks right into Tampa Bay and then goes to the Super Bowl. Uh, I, I had promised, you know, look, as you might imagine, if you're not a Patriots fan, you're like, the hell with these guys. And I keep hearing about the GOAT, the GOAT, the GOAT, you know, all this stuff. Finally, I said, hey, if he goes someplace else and wins a Super Bowl, I'll call him the GOAT. But I'm never calling him the GOAT until then. Sure as hell. <laughs> he did it the next year. Now I've I've got to stay true to my word because that was the was the agreement. Anyway, you begin at DraftKings. You know, we're not here to talk about DraftKings, but I presume that led to some of your knowledge, as you mentioned. How much data science goes into that? It goes into every bit, every single aspect of the product. Uh, both from the deciding where lines are set to deciding what marketing material you're going to be shown. Uh, it was an extremely data-driven company, uh, and there was an analytics or data science function for basically every operational arm. So everything is done with the data science flair to it. It's one of the reasons why it was an amazing place to work as a data scientist. I would imagine so. That's why I asked the question. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, I have FanDuel. Just because I've been playing around with it, I'm not much of an app gambler. But it is amazing how they'll throw ads. I guess no different than you see on Google or otherwise, but that are tailored. Similar idea. To what a, yeah. It's you amazing. Use, they must have an army. Use machine learning to decide what you want. You, know, you have to decide what you want to optimize for, and then you use machine learning to figure out uh, the most optimal way to achieve those outcomes. And in many times in DraftKings, that's depositing, placing more bets, retention. Uh, and you, you know, there's all sorts of cool things you can do to model that in the most optimal way. How, how much does the the actual bets themselves, in other words, whether you're on one side or the other, set the line versus the, the data science? Yeah. So 
you know, I'm not, I'm not going to speak exclusively to what that is. <laughs> yeah. you know, but I, I will talk about what the industry does in general. Okay. Uh, they, you know, you set lines based on data science. You have your own models and you have, you know, you can check out what the lines were previously of the last week and then the adjustments to be made. And you can usually get your, you know, there's, there's definitely a pretty tried and true process, especially for something like the NFL, that a lot of it can be done with just pure data science. A misconception is that the lines will move based on public betting on any given week. Uh, that really doesn't happen very much. Now on certain events, particularly like the Super Bowl, that will happen just because there's so much action that you really don't want to have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars exposure just on one side, regardless of where you think the line should be. But on a week to week, uh, it is very unlikely the line will shift just because 90% of recreational bettors are on a given side. Now, the exception to that, and this was what part of my work was centered around, is if there are players that are known to usually be ahead of the market and are lifetime winning bettors and are have metrics about them that make us believe that they'll continue to be a winning better, uh, the market can move based on what they do. So it is much more about who is doing it than how many people are doing it. But and I that thought some could be a small bet even. It could be $5,000 can move the markets in some cases. But I thought the data science, and maybe this is misinformation on my end, would set the line based on the bets because you always want to be out on the winning side, right? With the goal of getting 50-50 action? Yes. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty that's a, a mostly a misconception. There's a little bit of that, you know, subjective touch, but uh, that is not a game you really want to be playing. It's you're much better off to set the line where it should be, and you'll get outsized exposure on given sides of it on a given game. And who really cares if you, you still... set the line where it should be, and there's actually the median outcome, you're going to make money. Though. Okay. All right, I learned something today. So that brings me to consensus. How long has this company been in action? We really started working on it in about August of last year, 2021. So uh, the way I understand it, there is like ad supported search. Like if I go to Google, as soon as I hit something, I'm going to get the ads up on top. And it's based on, you know, their, their monetization policy dictates the results or the, the search results you're going to get back. Whereas you have really changed or, 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 or turned this, put this on its head in that you're driving results based on evidence from peer reviews, peer yeah. studies, correct? That is 100% correct, yeah. So I get it, and I understand that you had a great intro that kind of explained it. What was the trigger point that said, hey, well, I got to start a company that does this because nobody's doing it? Where yeah. do you get to that point? Yeah, it really was the culminate. It was two things. It was, you know, I actually had this idea seven or eight years ago. I pitched it to a friend of mine who is now my co-founder. It was actually him who came back to me in the pandemic uh, and had put together a presentation of, of how it could be done, how it would look, and why we should do this now. And it was an incredibly compelling story. And the, there were two components of it. One, there was this clear societal demand at the time, you know, in the heart of the pandemic. And it was extremely clear that this idea had only gained in popularity and demand for it. People were after good evidence-based information about scientific topics quickly and they were struggling with the ability to get it. Uh, and then the other part, which is you know proven to be more true than I think I could have even ever imagined, was these language models and the pushing forward of AI specifically in the natural language processing space. Uh, and my co-founder, to his credit, had done a bunch of research on it and had basically convinced me that 
hey, these models are about to change what you can do uh, text processing wise. And that idea you had, it's actually probably just solvable as of a few years ago. And if we don't do this, somebody else is going to. And he turned out to be right to a degree that I could have never imagined. It's the same underlying technology that uh, you see with chat GPT or anything like that. Uh, it is the same underlying type of technology that uh, is able to process and understand human text and human language. Uh, and yeah, it is uh, probably the hottest technological space in the world right now. How would you be monetized then? Though, Because uh, we know how Google's monetized. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you, what, what's your plan for monetization? I want to get into technology next, but yeah. let's talk monetization real quick. Yeah. Uh, so it will be a freemium subscription product. And we hope that the functionality that exists right now will always be free or mostly free. Uh, and then premium features that we're building on top of it that will be you know, the synthesis, the automated synthesis of the results screen or some confidence scoring about the results or some you know, output like deliverable automation. Uh, those will be behind paywalls and we will monetize via subscription. We actually tested it and we offered an early bird discount for the future premium tier and um, we're able to convert a considerable mass of our users over to that. So just the idea of this future premium tier um, was enough to convert a, a real critical mass of users. Who are you converting? Who, who's your client base? Yeah, so it's all individuals right now. We eventually will sell to organizations. Uh, and it's, you know, one of the coolest things has been the variety of use cases we've seen. We've seen people using it like myself, who are just your average individual consumer who is, wants better information. The probably the most frequent one we see kind of sub persona within that is people who are like health and fitness optimizers. So people who are looking up research on supplements or sleep routines or exercise routines, type of people who buy wearable devices and want all the best information about their health and wellness. We see a lot of individuals using the product for that. And then, you know, another huge bucket for us is students. One of the coolest parts of that is we've had students from eighth graders using the product all the way to PhDs doing research for their thesis, uh, which has been really, really cool to see. And then we have a number of people who are also using it in a work setting. Uh, so people, you know, we've had nutrition coaches or physical therapists or doctors, basically anybody who needs evidence-backed information quickly and, you know, doesn't have the time or skill to navigate through all of the research uh, is a perfect customer of ours. And we've been lucky that that uh, that net is pretty wide and that net can be cast pretty wide. So give me an example. One of the use cases you use is health. Yep. What would make this better than like WebMD? Yeah. So it has some similarities to WebMD um, in that, you know, WebMD is generally pretty well vetted content that is cited, that is citing studies. There's a few differences. Um, one, WebMD is all manually curated. So there's no dynamic flexibility of, you know, you have to hope that they've actually written about the question that you have. It typically is more on like the entity level than the question level. So you could look up a WebMD about, you know, influenza or WebMD about a certain drug and they'll have their page about it, which is usually a great resource, but it is on like the entity level as opposed to I have this dynamic question that I want answered. And then it, at the end of the day, it is, um, somebody else's read of the research and somebody else's opinion of what the evidence says, whereas ours, you can go right to the source material and you can actually do your own research on these subjects. So I'd say that the, the main differences are it's dynamic and that it's not manually curated and we can actually 
respond to the question that you have as opposed to just having these static pages as a human row. And we actually are delivering you right to the source material. And then beyond that, we can cover a lot more subjects than them. We have research on economic policies and political science, uh, whereas WebMD is solely focused on medical type questions. So what, right. what, what we are servicing to you are claims being made from peer-reviewed studies. So the results screen that you would see when you type in a question, you say, hey, yeah. is fish oil actually good for my heart? What you'll see are claims made from papers that answer that question. So the results of our study indicate that fish oil decreases your chance of cardiovascular disease by 5%. That'd be one mm -hmm. result. And then there'd be 10 kind of similar below that. Each one of those would be from its own study, its own peer-reviewed study. What's your corpus of data that you're gathering this from then? Yeah, so we're extremely lucky. We have a partnership with the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, which uh, has a research data aggregator arm called Semantic Scholar. Uh, they have about 209 million peer-reviewed papers, uh, and we have access to those to populate our product with. Uh, and, you know, there's no exact, nobody knows exactly how many peer-reviewed studies there are in the world. Estimate is around a billion. So it's about 20% roughly of all peer-reviewed studies. And um, another cool part is if you look at the distribution of domains and topics of what is estimated to be all of the research, it pretty perfectly maps to what is covered in Semantic Scholar. So it's a nice representative sample of all of the research out there, while not being all of it, obviously. I guess there could be an argument for the wisdom of crowds, but you could also, I'm sure you're going to make the argument, say, look, the, the, the crowds aren't always so wide. Well, I don't think those are mutually exclusive. Uh, I, I totally believe in the wisdom of crowds, but I don't think that a blog... Uh, gives you any wisdom of a crowd. It is effectively just somebody else writing something. Uh, right. And many times it's somebody who's not actually an expert in that field. And we actually want to use some wisdoms of the crowd, but the crowd of experts. So like the future of what we want to do is, you know, right now you ask, is fish oil good for your heart? You'll have 10 claims made in papers on your screen, but they're still, each one is just a sentence from a paper. Eventually what we want to do is summarize that screen. Well, that's what I was going to ask next. Yeah, so hey, the, the top 25 studies all mostly indicate this, a few indicate that. We want to be able to, you to see what pop, you know, what is used to create that summary. We don't want to black box it, but that effectively is the wisdom of crowds of experts. Uh, and that is, the, that is the ultimate vision for what we're doing. Got it. Today it's distinct. Tomorrow you will add that summarization. Exactly. But important piece, you know, you see chat GPT and yep. you ask a question, it generates you a response effectively out of a black box, which is awesome for some workflows and use cases. But when you're dealing with evidence-based information, um, we think it's important to be able to know what the source material is that answer is being generated from. So even if we create you that summary, we want you to be able to see the results that are used to create that summary. So, hey, we have summarized the top 50 results. Here's your summary. But here are the 50 results if you want to go through them yourself. And we think that's really important for what we're doing. So you, you will summarize the distinct material, but even in the exactly. future, that, that material, that source material will still be... You want it to be accessible. And yeah. Yes. Well okay. said. Fair okay. enough. One more comment on the business, and then I do want to go into technology. If I'm a listener out there that says, this is interesting, and I want to go there, what are they going to fork over? Yeah. So right now, again, the product is totally free right now. So please do sign up at consensus.app. Try your searches. You can use the product for free. Uh, the you know no, nothing has been decided. We want it to be inexpensive, and we want it to be priced like a 
a new age modern software product that an individual can buy themselves. So we're talking, you know, tiers in the range of $5 a month up to $15 a month, depending on how we mix and match some of the offerings. So we want it to be accessible for anybody. Uh, we will have organizational tiers in the future that will be more expensive if an organization wants to buy it for their whole team. But we hope to have a, an individual price point that is extremely affordable that anybody could buy if they're interested. Are you venture funded right now then? Must we be. are. All right, let's talk technology. Is the core we're talking about natural language processing, NLP, is, is that what you built your technology on? And by the way, I, I'm at IBM and you know I'm, I'm certainly familiar with uh, natural language processing. We have Watson NLP. We yep. have other technologies called speech to text. But is that the core of, of what you're building your technology on? That is exactly right. We are using um, large language models that, that is the same type of NLP model that ChatGPT is. Say more on NLP for those that, you know, there may be some folks out there unfamiliar with it and also how you're using it and what differentiates your technology. NLP is just, uh, all it means is it's the sector of artificial intelligence dealing with human language. Many times we're talking about text processing is the most frequent application, but we also see, you know, text to speech, speech to text. These all can be kind of bucketed under machines understanding human language. And the, the real innovation recently is in these large language models. Mm -hmm. Basically, you know, there's a whole different flavor of them. GPT-3 is the most famous. Chat GPT is basically GPT-3.5, uh, trained to do a specific task and act like a human. But it's, they're all, and what we use is a, a Google open source model that is called BERT, uh, but they are all under the umbrella of large language models. And the, the big innovation with these language models is that they come pre-trained with knowledge of language that then allow them to have so much robust contextual knowledge that when you try to teach it to do a specific task, it does it so well in such a nuanced way. And I'll, I'll explain exactly how that's done in a second, but the way to think about it is basically, if I were to try to teach you to do a task, and I was saying, hey, you're gonna complete this work task for me. You don't come as a blank slate. You have a history of your entire life etched away in your brain. And you understand, you know, pattern matching and tasks that are similar to what we're asking you to do now. And that allows you to learn a task that I would teach you in a much uh, quicker and easier way, right? Uh, and that's kind of what has happened with these language models is they come what is called pre-trained with contextual knowledge of language. And then you can teach it to do a specific task. And that task, it's gotten so good at those tasks because it comes with this pre-trained knowledge. In the way that they have pre-train them is they basically are like GPT-3, for instance, is basically shown the entire internet. And when they show it the internet, they show these large bricks of text. They will mask certain words. So they'll block out certain words and they'll have it try to predict what word goes there based on what comes before it and what comes after it. So that's a key part is it actually, it doesn't read in sequence. It takes it all in at once. That is a breakthrough uh, from a paper in 20, a foundational paper in 2017 that I encourage all uh, users or listeners to read. Well, attention is all you need. Okay. And it is basically the basis for these language models. Where So anyway, they're all trained in this kind of method where they're shown a brick of text. There are words that are blanked out. It is shown what it comes before it, what comes after it, and tries to make a prediction of what goes there. Then it is shown the right answer, told if it's right or wrong, and then just continually learns of that. 
and it's shown that billions of times. So it's shown billions and billions of text examples with words missing, it tries to predict what's there, it has shown the answer, okay, now it learns it gets a little better. And it does that over basically the entire internet. And that's how it shows up to you when, before you then teach it to do a task. Then what you can do is what's called fine tuning. And that's what we've done and that is where our big differentiation is, is you can then create data sets where you are basically teaching it to do a certain task. And so in our case, that is extracting claims from papers. So what we have done is we hired a bunch of scientists to go through scientific papers, put ones and zeros next to the sentences and say, where are scientists making their claims based on the evidence of the experiment? You can feed that text data to a language model that already has all this knowledge of what language kind of looks like and how it works. And then it can learn how to do this type of pattern. Where is this type of sentence that I'm looking for? It can then learn how to identify a claim in a paper, and in our case, extract it from the paper. Uh, and that is really where our differentiation is, is that our task is very targeted and custom. We're asking it to read in this complex jargony world for a specific type of sentence, a specific type of text, and it requires expert annotations to do it. So you can't just hire Mechanical Turk to mark up a bunch of papers. It has to be annotated by scientists to then give that data to your language model to teach you how to do it. So we put a lot of time, effort, and money um, into hiring scientists, coaching them up on what we were looking to do, getting all these annotations, then feeding it to our own language model to teach it how to pull out text from a paper like a scientist would. To summarize, see if I could state this right, yeah. scientific studies, you take and extract claims from papers that nobody else is doing, bottom line. Yep. And then that allows, we basically have a giant knowledge graph of claims made in papers that then we can search over. And the way we've extracted that information at scale is by teaching a language model how to pull out those claims. Are you making use of chat GPT or are you planning to in the future? Well, nobody is making use of chat GPT outside of some playground applications because it's just existing in the it was, demo. Yeah, November or something, wasn't it? Yeah, no, it was like two weeks ago. It was, it was, I think it was like December 1st, actually. Oh, it was? Yeah, so it's just in like a playground setting. Uh, so it's not able to be leveraged by other companies. But in the future, we will use chat GPT similar. We will use GPT-3, which is the underlying model that they've taught how to be, how to like recite that. Right, right, right. You know, I had a, a gentleman on my podcast that wrote a book with GPT-3. Amazing. And <laughs> I know it was amazing. I was like, I can't believe I'm going to talk to somebody that wrote a book with AI. And he said, I'm asking AI questions and you should see the beautiful responses I'm getting back. So then I questioned it even more, but then he walked through it because it's taken like ex excerpts from Nietzsche all down the line, the Bible, whatever, and puts it all together. And you can ask like, what is love? It was pretty amazing. I have to say, I was like, oh my, it is cool. It's anyway, pretty incredible. It is pretty incredible, right? I've, I would have never... I would have never thunk it. But now we got essentially GPT 3.5. All I know is that... Uh, GPT 4 is coming. It's rumored. It's like 100 times <laughs> bigger sure. than GPT 3. But what's the difference between 3.5 and 5, essentially? Yeah, so the, the size of the training corpus. So like okay. GPT 3 is in the hundreds of billions, I believe, parameters. And I believe GPT 4 is rumored to be over a trillion. And it's just how much information it's shown to learn. And then the chat GPT is basically... Uh, an iteration of GPT-3, yeah, like 3.5. I think it is a little bigger. Uh, and then they have it like tuned to do this specific like dialogue task with humans. 
So like they have their own kind of, I, I don't know all the specifics of it, but yeah, that's fine. effectively it's given fine tuning data in the same way that we gave our language fine tuning data to do a task. It's given it fine tuning data to have, to be a chatbot, to have a conversation with a human and be conversational and be an assistant. I thought it came out in November, you know, whatever. It's still soon. Like Google came out and said, Hey, they're not going to use it or they're not going to, they're too far invested in what their own search is. I, I don't know, but I don't know if you have any comments on that. The problem they have is that search results page, that page with a bunch of blue links on it, mm-hmm. that's where they make all their money. Mm-hmm. If they don't have you scroll on that page, they're not making their money. And a question and response and answer engine, uh, a, a chat bot that answers your questions in the way that what you're looking for in a search that really reduces the amount that you can monetize if you're running an advertising-based model. So I am, again, purely speculating, but I would imagine there's some wrestling internally with how much they oh, want to sure. invest in these things and how to integrate it in the right way where they don't lose all of that value of the search results page. Because, uh, you know, engagement and click-through and scrolling is more dollars. And a chatbot that perfectly answers your question and all you had to do is just ask one question that is less dollars if that is your search product if you sell advertise if you sell ads but but for for your success you're betting on a monetization strategy where people actually pay for exactly. essentially no ads kind of like the incentives are aligned with the user all we, we all we care about is trying to get you the best information we don't try to care we don't try to alter your behavior in a way that keeps you in the product to sell you more ad and that is you know that is what all the best engineers across silicon valley at some of these biggest tech companies that's all they do is they optimize algorithms to push you the best content that will keep you clicking so they can sell you more ads. Uh, and their incentives are not necessarily aligned with the user because of that. And if you have a subscription model, obviously you are, have a, a, a bigger hurdle to cross because you have to have customers pay you and you have to build a service that's good enough that they'll actually pay you for it up front. But if you can cross that hurdle, which I contend that language models will, will allow companies to cross that hurdle because the service will be so good, then companies can actually have purely aligned incentives with the user. All we're trying to do is get you good information. Look, I'm not a big believer in ads for all the reason you mentioned. Same reason I pay for Netflix or otherwise. But I have to tell you as well, then I see like Disney and Netflix having, bringing ads back. And I'm like, what ha- what just happened? I thought that was the beauty yeah, of like streaming. So I, look, I sometimes I think I know what the public wants and sometimes I'm confused as hell because I don't know why anybody would want to bring the ads back. I guess it's cheaper. I mean, that's why you'd want to bring it bring it back. Make more money, yeah. But man, I, I'd rather spend my time watching the content and get less streaming services for direct content versus that's that. That's probably why they do it. So you, you felt that way and then they can be like, all right, well, now if you don't want ads, now you bump up the subscription $5 a month and we want to show you ads. And now you're like, oh crap, I have to do that. So is there any other machine learning techniques you're using that are worth talking about? Yeah, I think the the other, so there's, there's two real uh, hardcore machine learning NLP that we're doing. It's that extraction piece. And then mm-hmm. on the search side, we have another language model that we use to try to find the answers to your question. So it's basically a Q&A language model where it takes in your query. It basically tries to understand what the intent of your question is, like what are you trying to look for? And then it will try to look for those claims that we've extracted that answer that question. I have went out to the site and I've done some queries, but because you're still building this, and look, I haven't experienced this yet, but do you ever get a situation where it can't answer the query that you put out? Oh, certainly. Yeah, I mean, 
we're confined to specific domains and we're confined to what researchers have studied. So if you pop open consensus, so like this is where it's unlike ChatGPT because ChatGPT is right. designed to answer any question and sound confident in doing it. And that's kind of what our niche is trying to be. It's like we're, we're trying to be really good at a specific type of questions instead of trying to boil the whole ocean with the chatbot. Uh, if you come onto our product and say, what is the weather tomorrow? It's going to give you nonsense. That is not how science, you basically have to ask a question in the way that a scientist would hypothesize a research paper for. So does uh, minimum wage, increasing the minimum wage, increase unemployment? Like that is a hypothesis that a researcher will have liked to study. If you ask a question like that, we'll do great. What are the effects of melatonin on jet lag? We'll do great with the questions like that. But if you come in and ask a question that has nothing to do with something that's going to be studied, yeah, we'll, we'll give you back nothing interesting. So your values would say, look, you'd rather not give something back interesting if it's not a scientific stamped yeah. source not, of, of information. We're not trying to steal all of Google's traffic. We're trying <laughs> to steal traffic from Google where people have researched it because we think we can do a lot better than them at those questions. And that's our goal. Be a lot better at a specific type of question. Don't try to do everything. I am interested in the summarization piece, though, just because, you know, I'm probably like everybody else on the planet, busy, et cetera. And yeah. You bring up some of these scientific studies. Boy, they can be a dissertation that you're like, oh, I just want the I want the the, the short version. So uh, I is that coming? I mean, is that part of the summarization that's coming yet? Or can I get pieces of that today or no? Yes and no. So, I mean, yes, unequivocally to that's what's coming. That is what we want the basis of like our premium tier to be is the ability to ask the question and have that result screen summarized for you. Hey, 75% of the studies say this, 5% say this, 10% say this, here's your answer effectively. Uh, but right now, you know, what our models are trained to do is find the core claim of the paper. So, well, don't get me wrong, scientists still sometimes write those conclusion statements in jargony ways that are tough to understand. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we are doing some of that work for you. So you don't have to read all this background information. We are pulling out, you know, what is the conclusion that is responding to your question? Uh, so we try to do some of that now just by the way the product's designed. But in the future, for all the reasons you said, we want to give people the ability to get a quick summarized answer across papers. But again, we want to always have that source material still there present. We don't want, you know, we want the ability for people to dive in further if they have the time and they want to be able to see the context behind some of these claims. Uh, but we want to also give you the chance to get in and get out and get you good information quickly. Sounds great. So what are the predictions you have in this space? Where do you think we're going? Yeah, so I'll say that this is a bit of a cop-out answer. It's <laughs> going to be like so many things about the future that, the people who say that now every single thing about everything has changed are probably wrong. And the people who are these huge skeptics like, oh, this isn't ready for prime time and this is going nowhere, uh, whatever, are also probably wrong. And the answer probably lies somewhere in between, like it does with most things. And where I think we're going to see, we're already seeing this, where we're going to see the most traction with these models uh, and the biggest use cases is going to be in fields that there are subjective outputs. And so what I mean by that is um, where people are creating content, where people are writing blogs, where people are creating marketing copy, uh, use cases like that, it's going to be taken over by these generative models really quickly because the outputs are just that, they're subjective. 
It doesn't need to be a, there is no right and wrong answer. It doesn't need to be precise. If you're trying to brainstorm what you want to write a blog about, then who cares? Run it through GPT, chat GPT, ask it to write you, you know, generate you like your friend who wrote the book, ask it to generate you 15 copies of it. You can do that in five minutes now and you can see which one you like best, steal from it. And it doesn't really matter what it spit out. Now we think we're doing something a little bit different where it's like, you're looking for precise information. So that's why we're not using purely generative out of thin air answers like these models can do. Um, but I think it's going to be in fields like that where we see it take off the most. So like we've seen companies like Jasper AI, where what it does is you can type in a prompt and it will spit you out marketing copy. So you can you know generate slogans and generate snippets to put on your Instagram ads. And it'll do that for you in seconds really, really well. And again, it has that same quality. There's no right and wrong answer for how to build marketing copy. So use this tool as a brainstorming tool alongside you to save you bandwidth. I think for it will, there'll be like co-pilot email writers where thing again, like there's no right and wrong answer there, right? Like it could just generate you a version of the email you're trying to write. If you don't like it, have it generated again. It doesn't matter. Give it as many tries. There's no right and wrong answer. You can fiddle with the language a little bit. Um, another thing we were already seeing GitHub has a pretty cool product is a code writer co-pilots. But again, you, know, you think of code as this very technical objective thing, but there's a million different ways to achieve something when you're writing code. And that's why it's actually great for generators to help assist you in writing code. You can say, hey, I'm trying to write a code. I'm trying to write code for a, a loop that does something like this. ChatGPT will generate you code that works most of the time. But again, it's subjective. Doesn't really matter how it did it. It just matters if it ends up getting you that end destination. So point of, to wrap all this together, I think in the next two years where we see it used the most are like kind of like co-pilot generative products where the outputs are subjective in nature to some degree and where we see it a little bit, you know, that's why what we're doing is a hard problem because we're trying to do it in this really precise way. Speaking of consensus specifically, if we're five years from now, things have go, gone uh, just along the lines of your, your growth plans. Where will you be? <laughs> yeah, we... Our vision is premium Google for expert opinions. So we want to expand to other data sets, other large text data sets where there are expert insights in them, build an easy to use intuitive search product to get you those insights. So our goal would be to, whenever you have a question that you think there's an expert answer for, we want to be the search engine that you go to. Again, we are not trying to build a product that's your personal assistant. We're not trying to build you a product that tells you what the weather is tomorrow or tells you what the, you know, a well-known fact of like what the population of Europe is. It's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to give you expert answers to questions where there are expert opinions. The cool thing about your business model is you know what you're not, which I think a lot of startups struggle with. They know what they are and they want to take a little bit of everything, but you're clear on your value proposition, which I think nobody's going to disrupt Google by just coming and doing everything better. You got to have a wedge. Do you got any other competition? We don't, there's nobody that's doing exactly what we're doing. There's another, uh, there's a nonprofit research organization that is building some pretty cool research automation tools, but their focus is really on people doing deeper research. Mm -hmm. And then I think where we'll really see competition is as we expand our reach a bit, it's inevitable that with this language models, that there's going to be other cool NLP driven search engines uh, that might use some of the same data that we use. So I think a lot of our competition will probably come in the future. We'll bump elbows with some other products that are um, trying to take advantage of these language models and how search could be disrupted. 
So our biggest competition probably comes from where we don't even know it's going to come from. I get it. I get it. Where can folks reach you? Yeah. So one, you can visit our website at consensus.app. You can create an account for free and type in any of your research questions. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at ConsensusNLP. Uh, we post a decent amount there. We love seeing people sharing results on Twitter. And yeah, that'd probably be the best two ways to do it. Go through the website or, or follow us on Twitter. A couple of leadership questions before we break, if you don't mind. Yeah, for sure. Um, what's the most profound learning you've had in this endeavor? It could be anything. Yeah, um, I think it is, you know, I'm a former athlete and this is something that has been Drill it into me as an athlete, and I think it's so true. It's so true in all business, but I think it's even more true as a startup. Uh, things are never as good as you think, and things are never as bad as you think. And a startup is a giant roller coaster of when things are going well. It feels like the world is at your mercy, and when things aren't going well, it feels like the world is caving down on you. And those realities are almost neither of them are almost ever true. It's always somewhere in the middle. And conveying that steady hand to your team and, and really trying to actually live by it uh, is something that is so important and so important for an early stage company. And it's something that um, I don't always do well and I really want to continue to get better at. It. I think it's so important to, to survive. The name of the game in startups is being a cockroach and just never dying. And you can <laughs> never do that if you have two up and down emotional swings. You'll burn out, you'll make mistakes, uh, and yeah, it's something I'm trying to continually work at. How does that tie into your leadership style? You know, I think it's, it's, it's trying to convey that, trying to have that type of attitude in front of the team. I think it's being honest and transparent and telling people both when there's good things and bad things happening and telling them about it. Um, and not just only giving them good news or only giving them bad news and being doom and gloom to try to inspire people to do it. I think it's about being honest and trans get people to work harder. I think it's about being honest and transparent, living by that yourself, like actually acting like it yourself is probably the single most important thing because there's, yeah, there's no better leadership than doing it by example. And now you started during a pandemic or at least at the end of the pandemic or, you know, anyway, we're still in pandemic times. And now we're talking about recession. How does that enter into any of this? Make it a good time or is it make it, it's just the time you got to do it one way or another, or. I mean, it, uh, it's something harder to raise money, uh, but you know, I think there are real benefits to it in some ways. It, it's, this is where cool stuff happens when, you know, you don't have unlimited supply of capital and you have to be craftier. You have to be grittier. You have to figure out, you know, it's going to, we'll probably push toward monetization faster than we would have. Uh, and I think there's a lot of companies that are going to feel that way. And if it, for, it kind of force functions you to innovate, you kind of, kind of see who the real winners are going to be faster. And it, uh, so obviously it makes it harder in some ways, but uh, I think it's interesting. And I think there's going to be a lot of cool innovation that comes out from being in a little harder press times. If you track back tech companies to previous recessions, there's real evidence of that. And the people who survive and innovate and adapt are become the real winners. Two last questions and I'll let you go. The first one is, hey, any reading material? You already mentioned attention is all you need. Yeah. Is there any other like book? It could be anything, personal, professional that you sell. Self-help, you know, this is the book that you got to have. Okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to start a little off the beaten path with what you're saying. Perfect. I love it. <laughs> Going back to startups and leadership and um, yeah, business in general, I'd say consume 
pick your topic about a startup or uh, entrepreneurship and find a Paul Graham essay on it. Paul Graham is the, the co-founder of Y Combinator. And he is the, you know, I, part of our thesis of the company is valuing expert opinions. And he is the um, foremost expert on all things startups and the mechanics of startups and what you should care about and understanding what you're getting yourself into. Uh, and if you're ever, if you're interested in entrepreneurship at all, I, I implore you to read five of Paul Graham's essays on whatever subjects you find the most interesting. Nice. That's a pretty good answer there too. All right. Here's the hardest question of all. What do you do for fun? Uh, so yeah, I, I'm a former athlete. I, I played football in college, so I love staying physically active. And the two ways that I do that the most are playing pickup basketball and skiing. I'm a huge skier. I'm going to ski for the first time this year, this weekend up in Vermont. Uh, and yeah, I love to play basketball to get out some uh, that competitive competitive juices. What position? Played for Northwestern and I was a oh, yeah, offensive lineman. Great. Right tackle. Right tackle. So you're a big dude. Uh, my peak, I was 6'6", 320 pounds. 320 pounds. So what do you do after college? Then you shed all that weight? Yeah. yeah you. Uh, How much you weigh uh, now, could I ask? Yeah, I'm about 240. So I'm still big, but I've, I've lost about 80 pounds. Um, yeah, you stop eating like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I often wonder about that, though, because – you probably get used to that lifestyle. You've been doing it for so many years and then, you know, you got to, all right, I can't do that anymore. That's got to be a, a life change, major it, life change. It, it definitely is. I'm lucky, you know, genetics are a huge piece of it. And I'm lucky that I was somebody who wasn't, wasn't like giant my whole life, like mass wise. I come from yeah, like yeah. a pretty skinny family. Uh, so I was somebody who had to put on the weight for college, which makes it a lot easier to then put off or take off mm -hmm. as opposed to somebody who's just been big your whole life and has giant parents uh, that's a lot harder to then lose weight when you're done playing. Um, so, you know, genetics obviously play a, a big role in it, but um, it still was a large shift in the amount of food you eat. And it takes a bit to get used to. And your body definitely yells at you that you need more food when you first start depriving yourself of it. A bit. <laughs> now, I know it's a little harder to play football after you get out of like, you know, a organized sport, but uh, you were obviously tall enough to play basketball and now you're playing pickup basketball. Why did you choose football over basketball? Uh, so yeah, I thought I was going to play basketball for the longest time. It was my first love. I could have played in college, but I was not nearly the prized recruit in basketball as I was in football. Basketball is an extremely hard sport to get recruited in. There's only you know 12 players on a team and uh, six sense. six centers that are not overly athletic don't make for the greatest D1 college prospects, but <laughs> six six with decent feet uh, is a great offensive tackle prospect. So Sounds like I, did, you did I, had, I had scholarship offers for D1 schools in football, and I could have maybe played uh, like low D1 basketball at, at best. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you made the right decision. Now you got a startup. You're doing well. Thank you so much, Eric, for being on. I greatly appreciate it. Learned a lot today. This is good stuff. You're going to do well. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Folks, thank you for listening. I'll see you on the podcast again. Always hit us on Al Martin talksdata at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until not next time, again, we'll see you on the podcast. Thank you guys. Bye-bye.